Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and if you're watching this on video, you already can see that one of our uh, most uh, recorded guests, Khuram Hussain, is back on the podcast. And the reason for that is, again, we're doing the, the full overview of the year. Last week, if you listen, we had Arfa Noor talking about the political outlook elections. And we really concluded that episode with a, a sort of a, a very important point Arfa made that the crisis of legitimacy uh, will be the thing to watch out for in 2024. And of course, linked to that crisis of legitimacy is the issue of the economy and what a government can and cannot do uh, after elections on February 8th. Um, and so as if like clockwork, Khuram wrote a piece in Dawn, which I've linked in the description, uh, basically, you know, using that as the argument for what can and cannot happen with the economy, again, asking this, raising this point that a legitimate government is the first and foremost priority. So I figured we talked to Khuram about that. But also in the meantime, the IMF uh, disbursement of another $700 million, that went through very smoothly. We all know Pakistan will need another IMF program uh, once this one-year program is over um, in the spring. Uh, so we'll talk about that and then go into the meat of the conversation, which is this issue of legitimacy and what Khuram will be watching out for. So Khuram, first of all, welcome once more and thank you again for your time. Thanks so much for inviting me. So Khuram, let's start with this story of the IMF itself, right? I was glancing through some of the coverage and what the IMF is and isn't saying. They're saying economy stabilizing. Uh, there are issues related to inflation with vulnerable groups, which has been the trend for the last three to five years now. Um, but they're also saying that, you know, the work basically is not done. You're stable. You have a primary surplus, but there's a long way to go. How did you see this particular uh, passage of the IMF review process, especially in my view, at least, and I'll put that on the table, the fact that it went through so smoothly without headlines, without breaking news, without staring contests. Kudos to Dr. Shamshad Akhtar for just normalizing this entire process in a way that many of us who even watch the economy were just like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it, it went very smoothly. And uh, the fact that it generated very few headlines is actually good news. And, um, and yes, I do think that much of the credit for that goes to uh, Dr. Shamshad Akhtar. But uh, from what I understand, her Secretary of Finance uh, is also doing, a, you know, is, is an important pillar uh, in that team as well. Um, and I think uh, the fact that Pakistan has now pulling back from the brink uh, the brink where we were in June 2023, uh, the, on, you know, the very brink of default of financial insolvency or or, or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that's that's overall good news. But, uh, you know, just a couple of things. Uh, number one, this particular IMF standby arrangement uh, is actually uh, exactly what it says it is. It's a standby arrangement. Um, you know, just looking at the targets that have been set within it, um, all it's seeking to do is put the country into a holding pattern. Um, all it is really doing is it's arresting the decline uh, in the in the country's uh, fundamentals that were that were underway from about you know the, uh, the 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 beginning or the first half of 2021. That's when the decline had actually begun. And um, um, so th this is not uh, a, a program that is designed to put the country on a on a sustainable footing for example 
uh, it is not designed to, to, to create the conditions for future growth. Uh, all it's designed to do is put the brakes on the deterioration that was underway. And uh, to that extent, it's succeeding. And I think uh, by April, by when the program ends, uh, the, you know, the country will be in a position to um, make its uh, debt repayment obligations that are maturing in that month, the big ones that are maturing in that one, in that month, and will probably have a favorable outlook into 2025 as well uh, for, the, for, for the next year. Um, but the country will not be ready for growth at that point. Certainly not. The economy will not be ready to, to get back onto the path of growth. For that to happen, another pro prolonged um, um, and a successor program needs to be signed, uh, which would be a three-year program. And that would bring with it uh, very deep structural conditionalities uh, that, you know, that, that, that really need to restructure the, the, the composition of state uh, expense, uh, of expenditures and, uh, and government revenues. You know, broadening the base of taxation, uh, paring back on uh, non-productive expenditures. Uh, these are the uh, which which is going to take substantial structural reform to bring about. You know, with the state-owned enterprises and uh, uh, power sector governance and uh, and things like that. And if I, I may, think... if I may, sort of interrupt on on that front, right? So you also, which I will link to in the description as well, a wonderful historical piece on sort of the history of the IMF and and Pakistan. You wrote it for Pi recently, which was amazing in terms of like the evolution of the programs and their structures. And the question, you know, you said there's going to be deep structural reforms. As that's been made before, doesn't really happen. Well, we can touch on why that's been the case, but. Obviously, one part of that is upward adjustments of prices, so more inflation, perhaps. The second pillar is usually austerity, so you got to sort of, you know, run run a tight ship, especially on the fiscal side. Um, but one thing that's changed, and that's where I, I wanted to interrupt and get your point of view. If you look at your piece and the evolution of the IMF and the Pakistan relationship, there's now a bigger actor, not just China, there's Saudi Arabia and the UAE as new actors that will be critical to plugging that gap of, of funding needs. How do you see that evolving in terms of this desire to push reforms, but reforms that perhaps the IMF, one would argue, has consistently failed to convince Pakistan on? Does the addition of new actors on the bilateral side change the dynamics in your view this time around? I think it intensifies the dynamic more than it changes it. Um, because both the the kingdom as well as the as as well as China have uh, fallen in line behind the IMF uh, in their dealings with uh, with Pakistan, at least in fashioning bailouts and uh, you know undertaking uh, rescue lending for 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 Pakistan, having grown weary of uh, the repeated demands for um, deposits and uh, and other kinds of uh, uh, you know rescue um, uh, borrowing from the from the Pakistan government. Pakistan again for this, the audience is already negotiating uh, another oil facility from the Saudis. At least that's what public reporting suggests. Another oil facility, but then we've also got uh, you know the authorities in this country talking off a twenty five billion dollar inflow that is in the works uh, from the Gulf countries. You know, I'm assuming with Saudi Arabia, we should also lump the other Gulf countries, uh, the, like the UAE. Uh, so, you know, they're continuing to look towards either China or the Middle East as sources of uh, cheap financing to under with which to underwrite growth in Pakistan. 
But uh, I think, uh, it, you know, what's becoming pretty clear from the, at least from the past couple of years is that uh, the, these countries are, are exiting that business altogether. They're, they're, they're not only with Pakistan, but with other countries that are, uh, you know, like Egypt that have been coming to them for rescue lending purposes as well. Um, they're all now being told that those days are over. So I don't think it's going to uh, uh, to change the, di the, the dynamic, but uh, both these countries are getting in line behind the IMF and saying, first, get on an IMF program, then we'll talk. Uh, so that, that adds to the pressure for, for Pakistan. They can't view these countries as an alternative to the IMF anymore, uh, which you know was something that uh, I think people in Pakistan, governments in Pakistan were tempted to do a few years ago. To feel that, ah, we don't need the IMF anymore. We've got China, we've got Saudi Arabia. Uh, but that's turned out to, that hope's been dashed. Um, but uh, I think the the idea that you can uh, uh, swap assets for uh, uh, bailouts, um, that has yet to be, you know, sufficiently, uh, th that has not yet worked itself through the minds of policymakers over here. Uh, people remain committed to the idea or, or, or remain, you know, wedded to the idea that uh, if they can only get the right asset offering on the table, large ba uh, bailout or, or large dollar inflows can yet be activated from uh, from the Middle East. Um, I think it will still be a little bit more time before they realize that uh, whatever assets they can put on the table will not command the kind of value that they are thinking they may, they may command. You know, I mean, there's the equity share that Pakistan holds in the Rico Dick project, for example, uh, whose value would be measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It would not be measured in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, and then after that, you've got some state-owned enterprises uh, and maybe uh, uh, rural land, agricultural land, or maybe even uh, arid land that can be brought under, provided that uh, the transfer of arid land for arid agriculture comes with the requisite allocation of, uh, of water from the system. Uh, that's already, uh, you know, somewhat scarce and has too many claimants on it. Um, and these may yet command again. I mean, let, let's be generous. Few hundreds, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's possible that you could look at maybe a billion or a slightly north of a billion. I don't know. It's hard to say. But what is easy to say is that nowhere near in the kind of figures that they are looking at and that they are talking about. We're not talking of 25, and, and, 50, 75 billion dollars. You know? And just for the audience, so, right, We, uh, you and I love to talk, exchange these points offline on, on data points. Um, on average, every year, Pakistan for the last decade plus has commanded roughly two, one and a half to two and a half billion dollars a year in FDI, if I remember the figures correctly. Um, so, you know, and I, I heard sort of Miftai smile on another conversation talk about this as well. Even if you multiply that by 5x from the historical average, there are then ramifications on the Dutch disease problem side of so much FDI coming into an economy that's not used to that kind of FDI. So forget about 25. If you go from a multiple of two and a half to 5x of the existing trend that has been there in the historical record, even that is nowhere close to what people are wishing for in the economy. And that itself wouldn't solve the problems that are there on the macroeconomic side. Yeah, yeah. I recall seeing a Chinese calculation and uh, it's it's in the, the long-term plan for, this, for CPEC. There, there's a chapter on finance in that where they evaluate the financial health of Pakistan's economy. 
And uh, in there, they clearly write that Pakistan's economy cannot afford FDI uh, in excess of $1.5 billion a year. Um, which then makes one wonder, you know, how did they go ahead and uh, pour $21 billion worth of FDI into this country um, during the CPEC years? Um, because uh, that was clearly in excess of the limit that was set. But then, you know, I, I'm not sure what the decision making was at the Chinese end at that time. Yeah. So let's let's uh, move on to the second part that I wanted to get your thoughts on before the, the meat of this conversation, which is, OK, we kind of know more IMF is needed. This government, the caretaker government, has sort of made it a point of saying we will make certain tough choices where we can uh, to either maintain stability or, you know, chart a path forward for the IMF moving forward when our time is done. And part of that most recent announcement was the FBR reforms. But they've also looked at other things, SIFC approving new tariffs and, and sort of pushing the envelope in terms of its own mandate over there. Um, the caretaker government consistently talking about agriculture, as you also alluded to as well. Um, but the FBR story was big this week. Um, how do you see that among other sort of attempts being made by the caretakers that perhaps at least in my own opinion, uh, are above and beyond the mandate of what a caretaker government ought to be looking at in an environment. So how do you see all of that? Let me just share two observations on that. And they may or may not be connected or whatever. But observation number one, yes, uh, it is a bit odd to see a caretaker government undertaking what is clearly a very deep-rooted structural uh, issue over here. Um, these, these kind of reforms uh, don't come about by dictation. You can't just like, you know, order to take a, within a month, separate these two out. So it was kind of odd to see them trying to undertake something as large as this, you know, the Indian Revenue Service to be separated from the Customs Service altogether. Uh, this has been tried before. This is an old idea. This is not something new as such. And it always uh, meets the same uh, or runs into the same uh, uh, obstacle, which is the FBR officialdom is opposed to this, uh, very deeply opposed to this. And as of today, we've seen, you know, that um, uh, I think in Shabazz Rana's story in the Tribune today, he's pointing out that uh, one of the large taxpayer offices, the, the largest one in the, in the country, uh, decided to go on strike uh, rather than play ball with this idea. Um, you know, these kind of reforms always meet with stiff opposition from within the, 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 the tax bureaucracy itself. Um, and this is something we've been seeing for decades now. Uh, the, 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 the biggest obstacle to tax administration in this country, or tax administration reform in this country, is the FPR official. Do you have and, a point uh, no of view... Uh, just for the audience, uh, sorry to keep interrupting. Do you have a point of view? Why, what's their logic for their resistance on this? Like, is it just about their uh, bureaucratic sort of, you know, space? Is it about power? Like, help the audience understand ke, why does this keep happening time and time again? Well, I mean, for one thing, bureaucracies do tend to be opposed to change. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I think in the FBR, we see an unusual, uh, you know, the un unusual level of commitment to remains within the status quo, to, to, to you know, an uh, unusually large uh, opposition to change. Um, I think the reason is, uh, number one, um, they want to increase their discretionary authority. And uh, that's something FBR officials always try and do in all, uh, um, in all circumstances. They always push back on attempts to try and uh, shrink their discretionary powers and discretionary authority. For example, it's FPR officials who opposed to the nail the idea of automation. 
in um, in, uh, uh, in 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 tax collection, you know, and uh, the idea that uh, the the contact between officialdom and the taxpayer should now be eliminated. It should all be done through only the app or through the through the software, um, because that leaves a, a record behind. It's it's officialdom itself that uh, would obstruct this. First by arguing against it, and second by uh, either uh, bringing a very low level of commitment. Uh, to adhere to to it once it's been introduced, uh, um, actively looking for attempts to sabotage it, uh, or then you turn it into an excuse for poor performance and say, okay, well, you know, we were unable to meet the revenue target because of this uh, automation system you brought in. We were not able to uh, really, you know, do audits the way or, or not able to, you know, get the kind of revenue we need from, uh, from, from, from the people in our area uh, because of it and then things like that. Um, but then there's also a darker side to this. You know, there are rackets within the FPR. The FPR is notoriously corrupt. And um, I think a lot of these reforms are designed to try and uh, shrink the space for this corruption. And it ends up disrupting the rackets that uh, that operate within the FPR. So for that reason, too, uh, you know, the, they, they, they tend to oppose it. Um, so I'm not saying that every officer in the FPR is corrupt. I'm saying some, in fact, many uh, are. Uh, but in this particular case, even those that are not corrupt um, would be motivated by things such as, you know, preserving their, their sphere of autonomy and increasing their, their exercise of discretionary power uh, in opposing change. And as a result, you're seeing a very widespread um, uh, refusal to, uh, to play ball with this, uh, this initiative. I don't think the interim government, and they should have known this, actually, the interim government has what it takes to push this through. Um, a, a government, of, an elected legitimate government standing on its own feet uh, with deep roots in parliament, in uh, in the people, uh, they can take on rackets such as these. But I think an uh, interim government that's basically here just to like, you know, sign orders and uh, push paper back and forth, I don't think they're, uh, they're, they're up for it. I don't hold out much hope that uh, they're going to, you know, make much headway in uh, advancing this. Let's see though, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, so that that's a good segue into the broader post-election scenario, right? So if I rewind the clock to 2018, which feels uh, decades ago, not just five years ago or six years ago, we knew there was a need for an IMF program. New government comes in. Asad Omar is the finance minister, and he takes a long time. That That's part of recorded history now in terms of what played out. You alluded to this as well. There was this belief that jo gap hai financing ka, we can fill that from friendly countries. I don't need to go to the IMF. Yeah. Eventually came to Washington. The meetings did not go well. And by the time he landed back in Pakistan, he was out. And then the deal happened. A lot of time was wasted. We're running into this specific time now, where, as you said, there is this is a standby arrangement. There's going to be a new EFF uh, needed uh, by the time a new government comes in. And my in my timeline, I don't know how you're looking at it, Definitely before the budget comes out uh, for this year, there, there needs to be momentum on the IMF side and, and, and positive momentum. But linked to all of that and what the IMF will ask uh, the, the government to do uh, on austerity, on price adjustments, on whatever reform agenda that can be agreed to, is this question of legitimacy that you wrote about as well and what Arfa talked about last week as well. Um, what will you be looking out for post-election Given this sort of, you know, need for a new IMF program, a new government coming in, we're still, you know, as of this morning, the moment we hit record, 
Um, the question over the bat symbol is still ongoing in the Supreme Court. The PTI is protesting about all sorts of things that are happening to it as a party. Um, the question of legitimacy will loom large. So I, I want to hear from you how you're thinking about the links between that and what needs to happen on the econ side and the IMF side. Right. Um, then what I'll be looking out for is how all of this resolves itself, right? What we have happening in our political space right now. Uh, because at some point, uh, what we are seeing happen in our politics has to end, and this has to yield and uh, give way to uh, a normal government. You know, and a normal government is one that is not consumed by um, the desire for for revenge, for for or for the settling of scores. Uh, right now, what's happening in in Pakistan is that we have a four player game underway, and one or one a very important rule when playing a four player game is always keep one player with you, right? Always have one friend. Because the moment you lose that one friend, it becomes three versus one. Uh, then you're done for. Um, but uh, what's happened now is that it's become three versus one. So we've got uh, the four players are the army chief, the chief justice. You know, we can call them the two chiefs. We've got the Nawaz Sharif, the prime minister aspirant. And uh, we've got Imran Khan, the, 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 probably the most uh, popular leader in, in the country right now. And were free and fair elections to be held, I think pretty much everyone uh, agrees that uh, his party, he and his party would sweep it. Um, or if not sweep, at least, you know, carry it to the point of uh, being able to form the next government. Uh, there, there's not many doubts on that uh, at the moment. Uh, you've got these four players. And what's happened is that until even last year, until 2022, uh, Imran Khan could be said to have had one player on his side, which was Umar Atabandeya, then Chief Justice of Pakistan. And, and that sort of kept him in the game. You know, that kept him going. Uh, because in a four-player game, if you've got two versus two, uh, you can still, uh, you know, the game is still on. The moment uh, it becomes three versus one, uh, then you... Then and, you and, and, the and through 2022, he had... The, the three were on the other side, right? So the army chief, Bajwa, Imran Khan and... Nas, uh, Chief Justice Nisar and then Bandeal were sort of on his side. So that evolved post-2022 into what you're describing yeah. as he was left with just one at the end of it. Now you've got it. Now in 2023, what happened was that it became three versus one. And uh, that was the, uh, then it moved towards endgame, right? Uh, once it becomes that. So, and what's driving the game, uh, what's animating it is the desire to settle scores. All three people now have scores to settle with Mr. Imran Khan. And that's a very dangerous place for Imran Khan to be in, uh, where it's three versus one, and all three have uh, a baggage from the past that they are bringing into the game and a desire to settle scores. Uh, so if you look at the army chief, for example, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, obviously very uh, um, keen that the actions of May 9th should be punished. And uh, uh, from top to bottom, uh, those that were involved in it, but also those that were involved in planning, abetting, inciting, uh, or or otherwise, you know, helping bring it about. Um, but I think on his list uh, of people with whom to settle scores is Imran Khan and the people around Imran Khan. And then the people that are, you know, the, the second, third, fourth tier of leadership of his party. And then the workers that were responding to the call, the social media influencers that were driving and legitimizing the process and whatnot. So everything coming down from Mr. Imran Khan and then the, the entire pyramid um, that, uh, that, that that comes down from there. 
But you look at the Chief Justice and his list is a little bit longer, right? His list includes Fares Hamid, the former DGISI, and the person that I think the, the, the CJ believes um, was the man responsible for trying to scuttle uh, Pazifai Visa's um, rise to the the, 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 the the post of Chief Justice. I would add to so, his list some of his own colleagues that perhaps he's now able been able to push out of the court as well. Yeah, but but I mean those are minor players, um, the, the the people being pushed out right now. So I'll I'll come to that in a moment. Right now, but you know, you, but you're talking of of uh, of uh, affairs. Amid, you're talking of of, of a general, a former general. And we've seen in the Azhar Khan case uh, that uh, the judiciary has usually not been very successful, or or even in the Parvez Musharraf trial, uh, successful in bringing uh, um, a former general, a senior general of the of the army, um, you know, before the judges. Um, but uh, but but nevertheless. Uh, if the army chief has a list of one, uh, the chief justice has a list of two. Um, but uh, but look at Nawaz Sharif's list. When he makes his list of uh, people that must pay for what happened in 2017 and after, it includes not only uh, Imran Khan and Faiz Amir, but he includes Amar Javed Bajwa, he includes Saqib Nisar, uh, and, then, uh, and then it goes on from there. And in that expanding and expansion of the list comes in, come in, just as Ijazullah Ehsan and whatnot. Uh, the people that are currently also on their way out because Ijazullah Ehsan, you'll remember, was the guy on the, I mean, every single anti-Iran Khan judgment. And he was the monitoring he, he monitoring judge. He was a monitoring Panama. judge in the NAB case. He was. So, Nawaz Sharif has a really long list as a Prime Minister aspired. And what now I'm worried about is that uh, the politics of vendetta are now in, uh, or of vengeance, vendetta, revenge, uh, or settling of scores, whatever you want to call it, is now in full play, right? It's it, the, the game is now turned uh, in, into that altogether. And the, our own history teaches us that these kind of politics, once they begin, uh, it's very difficult to bring them to an end, right? And that's what I'm worried about. At what point does this end, the settling of scores, and at what point does actually running the affairs of the country begin? Because that's that has to be priority number one for whoever comes in after the elections. It, the, the top priority cannot be the settling of scores uh, from the past. But what is going to happen in reality is that the settling of scores is going to accelerate in all likelihood. Uh, because uh, um, you know, you've got three players uh, one has one 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 name on the list. The other has two names on the list, and the and the third has about four or five names on the list. Um, that means, you know, a, a large number of years gone, right there, uh, just to muck that list uh, uh, that, that that list off. So, you know, and and this will impact the 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 legitimacy of the incoming government and and its ability to run the affairs of the country, its ability to, uh, um, you know, but, uh, we have discussed this in the past in your podcast. This wasn't a private conversation. How Pakistan's trajectory cannot, Pakistan cannot continue going the way it has been going, right? There, there's a certain end point towards which this is all going. And that end point is the non-viability, financial and economic viability of the state that is eroding the inability to pay for the expenses of a modern day nation state. That inability is growing with the passage of time. Um, and that is evidenced in the 
the the growing size of the bailout that Pakistan needs every time it uh, lands in a balance of payments crisis. Um, you know, so this trajectory, it's it's not an endless circle that you can just keep going round and round in. It, it's a trajectory that leads towards an end point of some sort. Um, it's very important that the incoming government get Pakistan off of that trajectory. And for that to happen, they are going to have to make that their number one and perhaps their all-consuming and only task before them. My fear is that that will not happen. And what will happen instead is that we will be litigating and uh, settling scores uh, emanating from 2017 uh, instead. And um, um, then, you know, it becomes very difficult to, uh, to, 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 to see how this is going to resolve itself and uh, yield to, to, to a superior outcome. Let so me, like if I may, is, uh, before yeah, you please. go on that, I want to get your thoughts on this uh, alignment, right? Um, what you're describing, and this I wrote about in the 2018 to 22 era multiple times as well, was a, is a triumvirate, right? Triumvirates can be highly stabilizing too in systems. And the biggest sort of historical example of that was the triumvirate under, under um, uh, pinning Julius Caesar's power in the Roman Empire, right? That he had these allies who among the three of them balanced each other out, but also allowed Julius to do what he wanted to do. But then once the falling out happened, eventually Julius was also killed and all of them basically died as a result of the, the games that they were playing. The Khan triumvirate was basically, as we talked about this, you know, Nisar, the chief justice, the army chief plus ISI is one sort of, I view that as one character in the game. And then the prime minister himself now there is a new triumvirate perhaps emerging. Let's assume Nawaz Sharif, the aspirant to the four-term prime ministership, has his way on February 9th. Um, that would you so when they're consumed by the cycle of revenge, would you then say that perhaps there is, in your view, I think you're a bit skeptical on this. I'm also on 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 your side on this, but just as to be a devil's advocate, they can choose to be a stabilizing influence if the three of them sort of as a triumvirate tend to work together, right? So there is an inherent stabilizing factor in this, you know, three-player alignment, if you were to call it that. And before people start commenting, that doesn't mean we're justifying anything that's happening. We're just analyzing the the structure of this, sure. this power pyramid. We're just analyzing it. We're not uh, yeah. justifying any of this. So that three-player game, in your view, what would it take for the three of them? Is it just a sort of a forward-looking thinking among some of these players of saying we need to get out of this? Or does it take something else to convince them that their alignment can actually be for the good as opposed to for the bad, aka revenge? Yeah, I think what it takes to for, for it to become uh, a triumvirate of stability um, is... Uh, is, is, is some kind of a commonly acknowledged end point to all of this, right? So if the three of them can need to agree that, look, these are the scores we'll settle, this is as far as we'll go in it, we will not go any further. And having attained that, we will then at that point turn and uh, get on with the task of, and literally allow ourselves to be consumed by the task to reform Pakistan and get it off this trajectory that is taking it towards uh, growing financial and economic non-viability. Um, so that 
endpoint could be, for example, that look, uh, we leave it at uh, disqualification of Mr. Khan for an X number of years. We leave it uh, and uh, his, his party or whatever, right? I mean, let them come to some kind of an agreement between them and say this fine, no further. Uh, but if they get into the the business of uh, you know first taking knocking out the fourth player. You know, the interesting thing with here to note, uh, uh, and, and you actually just brought this up, that when Imran Khan started, it was three versus one, right? It was Khan, army chief, and chief justice versus Nawaz. And we saw what happened to Nawaz in that. Then along the way, Khan first lost the army chief. So it became two versus two. And then he lost the chief justice. And it became three versus one in the opposite direction. And now we're going to wait to see what happens to Imran Khan. If I may um, add, there's, there's a dynamic take, here. You yeah. kind of read my mind. That the, one of the things that then plays out is that if one player in this instance is usually the army chief, you give him an extension, then one player is far, he's already, the office is far more powerful than the other two, but it's far more powerful after that extension than, than the other two. And that yeah. change of balance then creates the distrust or the, the cycle that then leads to what you were getting at, which is you lose the army chief over time or something happens and you have a falling out eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is going to evolve in the future as well, this uh, this triumvirate. Um, you know, but 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 they need to really have a commonly acknowledged endpoint for all the score settling that is animating the politics these days. Uh, this far and no further, um, number one. Uh, I think the 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 closer they draw that point to wherever we are at today, you know, the better. Uh, going further and further down this road is not something that is going to serve the country's interests. It may serve the personal interests of some of the people involved, of some of the players, but it will not serve the country's interests. Uh, so I think the sooner this core settling is uh, is over and behind us, uh, the, the only then can we get on with the task of being consumed by the reforms that need to be undertaken to get us off that trajectory. Um, one destabilizing factor in all this is the rhetoric coming out of the Khan camp. Uh, that doesn't help. It doesn't help when the rhetoric coming out of the Khan camp suggests, for example, that uh, uh, just you wait till we're back in power and we will show you and we will do this to you and we will do You know, when it creates the impression that you are still playing the old, uh, the old game. The rhetoric that needs to be coming out of Khan's camp is that what is happening to us today is wrong. We did the same thing to others in the past when we were in power. It was wrong then. It is wrong now. right? There's some kind of a reconciliation, uh, there's some kind of a reckoning with their own past. Uh, Khan has played uh, very violent politics. If you think about it, uh, you know, uh, the, the the story actually begins on 14th August 2014 when the tsunami march sort of departed Lahore on its way to Islamabad and the dharnas began. Those were a violent affair. Um, but uh, that story ends on 9th May 2023. And along the way, we've got very rough, very violent kind of uh, politics happening. First to tear down Nawaz Sharif, then to persecute him and his party people once Imran is, has been hoisted into power. And uh, thirdly, uh, to uh, once Imran is out of power after April 2022, we've got a very rough attempt to try and uh, 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 dissolve the assemblies and, and declare himself interim prime minister for an indefinite period. 
uh, meaning a refusal to let go of power when uh, the, the game is up. Uh, and after that, you've got a very, uh, you, you've got a, you know, a rough and at times very violent um, uh, bid to come back into power and to sort of drop the curtain on the game that is that was underway after April 2022. Uh, you know, and here the... Somebody asked what violence are you referring to? I'm referring to when the attempts were made to try and serve a note on Imran Khan and uh, he had uh, his party supporters standing outside, um, you know, violently repelling the police parties that were coming to his home. And, and Khurram, uh, on that note, like, again, I'm kind of like... Opponents have behaved in that way. I would just add, like, because, you know, this was a this is still a topic of discussion that I have with uh, many of my Insafian friends when they say that, no, we didn't do this or they try to underplay that. I just refer to them to a conversation that Imran Khan had with my institution, the Atlantic Council, where he himself accepted that when we were in power uh, and you people can go, I can post the link to the transcript that when we were in power, uh, we couldn't pass legislation because of interest groups, as he described them. And I'm paraphrasing, you're not reading word for word. So we told the ISI to make sure that yeah. my members appeared to vote in parliament. And I consistently point out, do you think the ISI was sending laddus to get these people to turn yeah. up in parliament? This is violence. This is the threat of violence on parliamentarians that the prime minister, the former prime minister himself is on the record accepting that this is what he did. His own coalition partners, his own coalition partners, and he has done this. Uh, he did this. You right uh, with the uh, with with the with the conversation you're talking about, but he has repeated that again with the uh, in in television interviews as well that he's given, um, where he said, "I will not take power if I don't get a two-thirds majority." They asked him why, and he said, "Well, because with a simple majority, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't pass a money bill without first calling the DGISI." Uh, to come because I was being, as he put it, blackmailed by my coalition partners. Um, so, I mean, that was a violent style of politics. Now, the thing is that along the way, along, you know, after having uh, having uh, pursued this style of politics for nine years, from 2014 to 2023, uh, the list of uh, um, scores that need to be settled has grown deeper and longer with him. So it's a source of instability in the sense that so long as the people in the PTI camp don't reconcile themselves to this past, uh, and you, you do that by owning up, you do that by saying, okay, yes, we did these things that are being that are being done to us. It wasn't, you know, it was wrong when we did them, um, and uh, we vow not to do them again. Uh, we vow to be better rulers next time we are in power and work more uh, on the basis of consensus. Uh, but you've got to admit that it's wrong now. Which is what Khan that criticized was... as the mukmuka of PMLN and PPP when Benazir and Nawaz well, sort yeah, of did that exactly. at the chart of democracy days. Exactly. Uh, because that this is exactly what happened in the 90s. Both Nawaz Sharif and Benazir Bhutto played this politics with each other, the politics of vengeance and vendetta and, uh, and revenge. And it led them nowhere. You know, it led them to jail. It led them into exile. And eventually it, it strengthened the hand of the military establishment that eventually stepped in and just like took control of the state and said, well, the state, we, we're going to run the state from now on. You guys are sent into exile. And they re they reconciled and they acknowledged this mistake of theirs in the Charter of Democracy, which is the only reason that I think we had another 10 year long run of uh, a democratic setup in this country. Um, now, I think it's Mr. Khan's turn 
to reconcile and to acknowledge that mistakes were made in his time. Um, and those mistakes have played a big role in uh, paving the way to his predicament today. And if he wants out of this predicament, uh, he's got to stop destabilizing this game by issuing more sort of threatening or, you know, by infusing more and more threatening rhetoric into it. Uh, and instead, I think he needs to adopt the politics of reconciliation, which is what really pulled us out of this game in 2007 and 2008. Uh, that's what Pakistan needs in order to be able to move forward uh, at this point. It badly needs a new politics of reconciliation, where all parties get together, acknowledge their mistakes, uh, and vow not to repeat those. And then, by and large, by and large, maybe not in every letter in spirit, but by and large, stand by the, that, uh, that, that commitment that they make with each other. Um, I think short of that, uh, it's going to be an inherently in unstable game. And the triumvirate that you're saying potentially can become uh, an anchor of stability. Uh, I think that will be uh, a hope that uh, will not be met. L last question on my on my end from you, um, because that again goes to the issue of legitimacy and reforms and, and what comes. Setting aside the cycle of revenge and everything, we have February 8th. By and large, February 9th, 10th, whatever the results are, whenever the results are finalized, there will be significant questions asked about the electoral process, pre-election, the day off, coalition dynamics, etc. Um, and then, of course, there's the tough task of reforms, which require, you know, FBR, retailers, all of the status quo elements that require being confronted by a government that has, as you said, deep roots to the people. Um, how confident are you that this initial phase, let's say, assuming that the that they sort of are committed to stability on the political side, they're able to, how, how, how confident are you that they're able to sort of go down this path of the true meaningful reforms that stem the tide against non-viability of the state? Like what, what are you sort of going to be looking at as telltale signs in the early weeks after February 8th to say, is this time different or not? I think first telltale sign would be who they appoint as finance minister. If they're uh, bringing back Mr. Isaac Dar as finance minister, and that will become apparent within days. Uh, if Mr. Dar is coming back as finance minister, we'll know that there is no seriousness of purpose uh, behind it. This is, of course, assuming that we have a PMLN government. I'm just assuming that because everybody else around me is also assuming that that's some sort of a foregone outcome at this point. I don't know whether that's the case or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, the choice of finance minister will speak volumes um, at that point. And that will probably be one of the earliest indications. Uh, after that, I will look for signs of uh, the prime minister or whoever is the prime minister, um, you know, looking or signaling <laughs> that he or she is desirous of ending this politics of uh, settling of scores and desirous of moving along now into the, moving into the, the politics of reform and uh, um, really running the country. Um, these will be the two earliest signs. I think after that, the speed with which they move towards a successor IMF program uh, will indicate uh, something um, the and and then after that the budget and how quickly they take up the budget making exercise the first budget strategy papers that we see 
will give us an inkling of uh, what kind of, uh, um, you know, um, how much capital they have to actually un to walk the path of uh, reform, but also the path of stability, um, because it's going to require restraint in uh, in exp expenditure restraint. I think uh, some of that will depend on the the scope of the coalition that uh, that they have to make, the composition of the parliament, and the seat shares within it. Um, because I think the more unstable the the incoming government is, the harder it will be for them to. Uh, uh, I mean, electorally unstable. Uh, you know, if it's got a very narrow majority or no majority at all, and is reliant on a large number of coalition partners, it's going. That's going to complicate their ability to um, maintain expenditure restraint and stay on a course of and you know bureaucratic reform of the, the bureaucracy and the power sector governance and things like that. So yeah, these would be some of the the, the telltale signs worth keeping an eye on. Thank you for that, Khuram. As always, a uh, pleasure speaking with you. And I think um, I, I agree with you. The first thing I'll be looking out for is, you know, the the at least the rumor mill, beginning with the rumor mill of who the finance minister will be on February, the night of February 8th or the morning of February 9th. And we yeah. move on uh, from there. And then I think, <clears throat> given I'm in D.C., uh, I'll be on the lookout for um, the spring delegations and and what they bring to the table um, to Washington, because that will be the first, I would argue, in my mind, at least if the timeline works out, um, the first major interaction that the new government will have uh, with the IMF and the World Bank here in Washington. And what comes out of that, I think, will set the trajectory for the next six to eight months. So uh, I think that will be very, very important on the econ side. But of course, looming large over all of that is the crisis of legitimacy and what happens on election day itself. So that is beyond us. As you said, there are three players involved in that game. Two ones are dominating the story right now, Justice Isa and Army Chief Munir and his DGI. So let's see what that yields. I think by the time this podcast goes live, we'll know more about the bat symbol drama, which is still playing out in Islamabad. So again, that's different. We'll cover that later. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation.